Sextet from Floridora, Tell Me Pretty Maiden, Edison Records. Pretty Maiden, one of the songs from uh, Leslie Stewart and Owen Hall's Floridora, one of many Edwardian musical comedies that were produced in London in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, This actually is an original recording dating back from 1908. Surprise, we've actually made it to the point in history where we can listen to music that was actually recorded at the time of the stuff we're reading. Um... Floridora is a musical about a British couple who get in trouble in uh, in uh, China while they're on their honeymoon for breaking the kissing laws, which is apparently a thing that was that the British couples had to deal with in the very early 20th century slash very late 19th century. Um, this definitely represents a certain sort of perhaps too deep fascination with oriental culture, but again, you're going to see this in a lot of Victorian literature, art, as we've talked about earlier. Um, The key to sort of this moment in time, the, the reason why I wanted to include this particular composition as opposed to any number of other sort of more classical compositions, is to sort of emphasize that there's this kind of strange fusion happening at this particular moment in time, where the old opera format that we've seen that are, you know, we associate with the rich and the wealthy is sort of becoming more and more lowbrow as the 19th century goes on. It becomes more of a bourgeois thing rather than a elite rich people thing. Um, and at the same time as London is creating all of these musicals, many of them are actually crossing the ocean and making it to Broadway, which is just starting to become a big cultural force in its own right. Um, so several of these Edwardian musicals, like the Floridoro or the Arcadians, um, both were huge hits in London and then went on to be huge hits on Broadway as well. Um, the Arcadians especially had an even more successful run on Broadway than it did in London. Um, so this is kind of this, the moment in time when the, the, the American musical is also very much getting its start. And musical theater is is transforming from the old operas of yesteryear, these you know complex, rich affairs, to something that everyone can enjoy. And the musical will go on to become one of those very popular, very sort of present for everyone 
musical and artistic forms, something that will then transform again with the advent of Hollywood and the movies and this whole new cinematic medium. Um, I emphasize it especially today, since we're going to be talking about Don Juan in Hell and Shaw's particularly interesting attitudes towards art and music and literature and exactly how much disdain he has for people who are only interested in enjoying themselves. How dare they? But we'll talk about that momentarily. So I know every time I sit down to one of these lectures, I start out and I tell you, oh, well, I know I'm supposed to enjoy all of these books equally, but here's the one that I really appreciate the most. And now you're probably thinking about how I'm going to do that again, but I'm not because I hate Shaw. Oh my gosh, he's the worst. It's it's a trick. Like, ugh. Every time I read this book, it just frustrates me. Um, part of that is just pure, like, combativeness. Um, one of my favorite authors is G.K. Chesterton, and Chesterton had, like, a long-standing feud with Shaw back in the early 20th century. So in some way, I'm kind of like, you know the kid who only gets, like, one video game console, and as a result, like, he is, like, Team Xbox forever and refuses to acknowledge any virtues of the PlayStation or the Nintendo system at the time. Like, that's just, you know, Xbox is the best, there's no question about this, because it's the console that I have, so obviously I have the best one. Um... Yeah, so some of that is just immaturity on my part. I hate Shaw because I love Chesterton, but some of it is just... Ugh. Like, I teach this part of Shaw virtually every year at this point. I introduced it into the curriculum a couple of years ago, like, fairly late in my, my teaching of general humanities, and it definitely belongs here. Like, it's insightful, it's definitely a good window into what's going on in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Shaw is a very talented writer with some very terrible ideas. Um, and those terrible ideas are especially indicative of what's going on in Europe at this moment in time. But dang, if it isn't just a slog reading through all this philosophy, like, half-baked, poorly reasoned, only, like, 60% witty philosophy, um, in order to get to what he has to say about Don Juan on the one hand, on about heaven and hell on the other, and... Again, it all fits. It all definitely nestles nicely in the curriculum. It's great to contrast Shaw against Dostoevsky and sort of Dostoevsky's attitude towards evil and how it's a very personal thing versus Shaw's view on evil, which is that it's just a perspective thing. Um, again, like, if you did enjoy this, great. Absolutely write more about it. I find that most of my students are also frustrated by this reading, that it goes on and on and on and on forever for them, just as it does for me. Um, but at the end of the day, we should talk about this, because this is a huge part of what the 20th century and the 19th century are kind of coming to be. Um, and in our next lecture, we're going to talk about, like, the 20th century. We're going to talk about World War One, and we're going to talk about 20th century art movements, and we're going to talk about this sort of overall dissatisfaction with the state of affairs and how that informs the 20th century. Um, and Shaw is definitely a great transitional work there. Like, here we go from the, the sort of violent optimism of the, the revolutionary 19th century to the 
violent, dispassionate pessimism of the 20th century, or at least the early 20th century. Um, so again, sorry if you hated this. I also am very frustrated by it, but I think it is really valuable, at least as an object lesson. Um, so maybe because I'm so frustrated, this lecture will go short. We can only hope, right? Um, at any rate, let's jump in. Let's talk about exactly what uh, Shaw is doing here. Um, so first off, just like a side note, because there are a couple references to it, and I imagine they threw you. Um, this section of, you know, the of Don Juan hanging out in hell is actually part of a larger play called Man and Superman. Um, and I don't know the play that well. I do know that Don Juan in hell is very much a, like sectioned off very self-contained component of this play um it's much like the grand inquisitor in dostoevsky like plenty of people read the grand inquisitor without ever reading the brothers karamazov plenty of people read uh the don Juan and hell section of man and superman without reading any of the rest of the play um in fact multiple people will like perform um don Juan and hell alone because man and superman like you know, we read 50 pages. It's roughly as long as, as like, Moliere's Don Juan all by itself. Um, and it was just this one part of this one act in this play. So, like, if you actually perform the whole of Man and Superman, it's, like, four hours long. Most people will either perform just Don Juan in Hell all alone, which gives you a good solid hour and a half at the least, or they'll perform everything but Don Juan in Hell, and they'll get another, like, two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour play. Um, the reason why Shaw includes it in here is a little baffling. Um, it's definitely meant to be allegorical, the sort of, like... Um, you'll notice that every time that we introduce one of the characters, like the old woman or Don Juan, um, you'll notice that uh, Shaw connects that character to one of the characters from the sort of play on the outside of this little text. Like, this is the dream, but the characters from the outside play are in here. Um, all Don Juan represents Tanner, Anna seems to be a little bit more um, like the one female character in the play. Like, when the statue shows up, it seems suspiciously like others. Um, this is fairly normal. So, um like Shaw is clearly drawing a parallel like this is this is a parable in its own right um it is an insight onto the nature of these characters as archetypes um but we don't have to deal with those characters so don't worry about them like you do not need to know how you know Don Juan relates to Tanner or how uh Dona Anna relates to Anna like who cares for our purposes um but let's start by, like, walking through how these characters are each introduced. Um, and notice that Shaw is very aware of the sort of tradition that he is borrowing from and manipulating. Um, like, the introduction here is stripped directly from uh, Don Giovanni, down to the point that, like, Shaw includes various bars of of the opera here in the text to introduce the various characters. Um, like, when the statue shows up, that dramatic, you know, D minor chord, um, Shaw specifically emphasizes that it's, you know, a, a terrible pleasure to all musicians um, because it's such a famous, a famous entrance and a famous moment in the opera. And he uses it to introduce the statue. Um... So, 
like Don or the Don Juan of this play is explicitly connected to the Don Juan, the Don Giovanni of Mozart. That's who we should have in mind when we're dealing with these characters. That's our baseline play. And the main characters that we're dealing with are all characters from that play. We have the old woman who shows up and she's just died and Don Juan is sort of guiding her. It is revealed to us that that is actually Donna Anna, the woman that Don Giovanni ravishes at the beginning of the play. Um, the Don Juan himself is the same as Don Giovanni, like he is, you know, the inveterate uh, romancer of women you know, in the sense of Don Giovanni, in the sense that he is raping them, not marrying them off the way that Don Juan of uh, of Moliere, or for that matter, getting seduced, like the Don Juan of Byron, uh, tend to, to sort of use as their M.O. Um, likewise, the statue is the commendatore, like Anna's father, um, just like in Mozart's Don Giovanni. Um, the sort of disconnect that exists in the Moliere play is not present. Um, the devil is obviously the outlier here, um, and you'll notice that, like, when the devil is introduced, um, just as all the characters have had, like, their musical indication from, from Mozart, um, from Don Giovanni, like, you know, we get the, the Don Juan theme for Don Juan, even though it's sort of sad and, and, like, it fades out, um, likewise, we get the, the statue the statue's entrance when the statue comes in. The devil, like, you'll notice there's this stage direction. At the wave of the statue's hand, the great chords roll out again. But this time, Mozart's music gets grotesquely adulterated with Gunod's. Um, Gunod wrote a Faust opera, which I believe actually, like, has, again, uh, sort of relationships to Don Juan in much the same way that Goethe sort of conflates Faust and Don Juan. Um... So again, like, we have a text that ties directly into both traditions. And you'll notice that the devil frequently makes reference to Faust. Like, he is managing Faust's affairs. He, you know, there's, there's definitely quote, direct quotes to Goethe's Faust Part 1. Um, again, like, this text is very familiar, very connected to a lot of the stuff we've been studying in this class. Like, Don Giovanni and Goethe's Faust, for sure, are in the sort of cliff, or are in the footnotes of what this text is talking about. Um, but let's also look at the way that these characters have changed. Um, how Shaw has sort of modified all of these very familiar archetypal characters to talk about um, this dynamic, to sort of engage in this new philosophy of his. Um, first off, this is hell. Like, that is our setting. Um, this is after the big climactic finale of the Don Giovanni opera. Don Juan has been dragged to hell by the statue, um, and he is now residing there. Um, Anna joins him having just died. But notice that this is not the way we usually understand hell to look like. Like, the act, they actually spend a good bit of time talking about, you know, how hell works um, towards the beginning of this excerpt. 
Um, so notice the first couple of lines we get, the old woman who is Anna, but we haven't revealed that it is Anna yet. She says, excuse me, but I am so lonely and this place is so awful. And Don Juan says, a newcomer? Yes, I suppose I died this morning. I confessed, I had extreme unction, I was in bed with my family about me and my eyes fixed on the cross. Then it grew dark and when the light came back, it was this light by which I walked, seeing nothing. I have wandered for hours in horrible loneliness. Notice that our old woman tells us that she died properly, according to the Christian mindset. She received extreme unction, she was forgiven of her sins, she had the priest look over her, she fixed her eyes on the cross as she died. Like, for all intents and purposes, she should be sped on her way to heaven. By all of the sort of conventional knowledge about Christianity, she should be good to go. And yet, she's in hell. Um... So Don Juan says, ah, you have not yet lost the sense of time. One soon does in eternity. The old woman asks, where are we? In hell. Notice her response here. Proudly, she says, hell. I in hell, how dare you? And Don Juan asks, why not, senora? You do not know to whom you are speaking. I am a lady and a faithful daughter of the church. I do not doubt it. But how then can I be in hell? Purgatory, perhaps. I have not been perfect. Who has? But hell? Oh, you are lying. Notice the denial here. The fervent, angry, proud denial. Um, Dona Anna is convinced she does not deserve to be in hell. She cannot understand how this would be allowed. She protests. I am a lady, a faithful daughter of the church. I haven't been perfect. Maybe I should be in purgatory, but I can't imagine that I would deserve hell. I deserve heaven, she says. Um, so Don Juan responds, Hell, senora, I assure you, hell at its best. That is, it's most solitary, though perhaps you would prefer company. The old woman responds, But I have sincerely repented. I have confessed. How much? More sins than I really committed. I loved confession. Notice that we've heard this before as well. Remember, like, back in Goethe's Faust, um, young Margarita, before Faust seduces her, Mephistopheles mentions that she was confessing sins to a priest and the priest could barely accept it because she was too demanding. She was coming up with sins that really did not apply to her. Um, she, like Donna Anna here, confess too much they take the the responsibility of confession too seriously and don juan says this here ah that is perhaps as bad as confessing too little he says at all events senora whether by oversight or intention you were certainly damned like myself and there is nothing for it but to make the best of it notice that where margarita is praised for her behavior like mephistopheles of course is grumpy about it but the fact that mephistopheles is upset should indicate to us how virtuous margarita actually is notice that don juan here just dismisses her better you had not confessed at all he says than confess too much um it is suggesting that the prob that Donna Anna's relationship to confession, her self-perceived holiness, is a problem here. Gets her into hell. Um, 
the normal conventions of Christianity are not what Shaw is describing here. His hell is not hell as we've typically understood it. Um, many of the characters will even mention that. Like at one point the devil talks about how the only way that we understand hell is through an Italian and an Englishman, referring to Dante and Milton respectively. And in both of them he, he seriously criticizes. Um, he says that Dante is romantic and nonsense and Milton's hell is pedantic and awful and nobody ever reads it, which is one of the many things that I get frustrated at Shaw for because I happen to really like the entirety of Paradise Lost. Good bit better than reading this anyway. Um, but I digress. Um, the old woman goes on, Oh, and I might have been so much wickeder. All my good deeds wasted. It is unjust. Notice... That when the old woman is protesting, oh, I, I, was, I did all the right things, I was well behaved, I was a lady, I deserve to be in heaven. As soon as Don Juan tells her, no, you're damned and there's no two ways about it, the first thing she says is, I regret I hadn't done worse. It is unjust. All my good deeds are wasted. I could have been so much wickeder. Notice... Donna Anna doesn't care about being good for its own sake. She cares about being good first, so she seems good, so everybody will think of her highly, like they will think that she is a lady, they will think that she is pious, and second, because it will get her into heaven. She expects a reward for the things that she does. Um, Again, like, there's something very hypocritical about this, and Don Juan is sort of quick to, to get at this. It doesn't take long for Dona Anna to, to sort of reveal this. Um, and Don Juan says, no, you were fully and clearly warned. It was not unjust. For your bad deeds, vicarious atonement, mercy without justice. For your good deeds, justice without mercy. We have many good people here. This is our first clear indication that hell isn't what it seems to be. Like, by all of everything we understand about Dona Anna, yes, she deserves to be in hell. She didn't take good deeds seriously. She was very hypocritical in her attitude. She only sought reward, and for that matter, she was proud of her accomplishments. Like, she could as easily belong in Dante's hell as Shaw's. But notice that Don Juan says here, there are many good people in hell. Um, now they go forward a little bit, like Don Juan reveals himself to her. He was a murderer and she's upset because she's apparently keeping, you know, company with murderers now. Um, but notice too that Don Juan is not tormented here. He is not being punished for his murder. Instead, he says, I am not one of the wicked. As much as he is a murderer, he is not evil. He is not wicked, which should also give us pause here. You know, this is Don Giovanni of Mozart, you know, the guy who raped all those women, put his servant in danger, and ultimately was justly served for his crimes. All those people singing at the end, like, good thing that Don Juan is in hell, be warned, don't do the same, or you will be punished likewise. Like, Don Juan here says, I am not one of the wicked, senora, therefore it bores me. Bores me beyond description, beyond belief. Hell is not tormenting Don Juan. He doesn't feel pain. He feels bored. Not because, like, that's the torment that he is receiving. There is no indication that that is the case. 
but rather because he is not wicked. Because he is a good man, hell bores him. So, I don't want to get into, like, all the nitty-gritty of about how heaven and hell works. I do sort of want to, like, skip over from passage to passage and look at what the characters say about heaven and hell um, that causes us to sort of understand what Shaw has in mind. Um, so with that in mind, like as these characters sort of reveal themselves, as Don Juan reveals himself to be Don Juan, as the old woman reveals herself to be Anna, when the statue shows up and explains that he has decided to leave heaven in favor of hell, um, they all give us a sort of glimpse of what the relationship between heaven and hell actually are. So start by throwing out your Christian conception. As much as this is sort of parasitical on top of it, um, it's going to be radically different from what gets you into hell or heaven by the Christian standard. Um, so notice a little further down before the old woman reveals herself, um, the old woman, you know, starts to reminisce about her own life. She says, listen to me, my father was slain by just such a wretch as you in just such a duel for just such a cause. She doesn't know it, but she is in fact talking about the man who, you know, Don Juan killed. Her father is the Commendatore, Don Juan killed the Commendatore, neither of them at this point realize it. It's just a coincidence. Um, I screamed, it was my duty, she says. My father drew on my assailant, his honor demanded it. He fell, that was the reward of honor. I am here, in hell, you tell me, that is the reward of duty. Is there justice in heaven? Notice she's still indignant. As far as she can tell, all of the good things about the world have not received their just reward. Her father was honorable. He fought for her honor and died. That was unjust. She was pious. She went about her whole life always doing the right thing, always celebrating her, her father's actions. Um, and yet her duty has also gotten her into hell. So at the end of the day, Donna Anna is just beside herself. She can't believe that the universe is this unjust, this unfair. And there will be no point in this play where she actually believes that she deserves to be in hell. Like, even when, you know, Don Juan takes off for heaven, he says, you know, you've got to find your own way, and she's upset about it. She's indignant that she hasn't gone there. Um, but we'll get back to that. So when she says, is there justice in heaven, Don Juan says no, but there is justice in hell. Heaven is far above such idle human personalities. You will be welcome in hell, Senora. Hell is the home of honor, duty, justice, and the rest of the seven deadly virtues. All the wickedness on earth is done in their name. Where else but in hell should they have their reward? Have I not told you that the truly damned are those who are happy in hell? Notice again what he is emphasizing here because there, there's a lot to unpack there is justice in hell he tells us there is no justice in heaven um this is appropriate to the original christian mindset like heaven is not just it is the product of mercy you don't ever deserve to get to heaven instead by god's mercy you are allowed to go to heaven um so, as he says, heaven is far above such idle personalities. But notice that he does deviate here. Hell is the home of honor, duty, justice, and the rest of the seven deadly virtues. 
Now, you've probably heard of the seven deadly sins. Like, remember back in Marlowe's Dr. Faustus when, you know, Faustus and Mephistopheles and Lucifer have, like, all the deadly sins show up, gluttony and sloth and pride and the rest, and they all sort of announce themselves and you get this whole morality play thing. Here, you see Don Juan reversing the understanding of that set of values where there were seven deadly sins on earth gluttony and envy and you know lust and vanity and so on here in hell there are seven deadly virtues honor duty justice and the rest and notice that don juan emphasizes that it is for the sake of honor duty justice and the other seven deadly virtues that people commit wickedness all of the evil that is done on earth, Don Juan tells us, is justified by being one of these virtues. I fought the commendatore out of honor. I lived my life and went to confession out of duty. I decided to punish that person out of justice, and thus evil things were done. Don Juan is saying here that it is in the name of virtue that most evil occurs. It is the name of badness that good deeds are done. And therefore, anyone who does those good things, who practices those virtues, the deadly virtues, will end up in hell. That is their appropriate reward. There is justice in hell, as Don Juan emphasizes. Um... But notice that the emphasis here is on the pretentiousness, the pretension to justice, the pretension to duty, the pretense of honor. Um, all of these things are not done for their own sake. They're done to satisfy the seeming requirements on a person. Donna Anna doesn't want to, you know, be pious. She would rather have done wickedness, and once she is in hell, she wishes she had. Um... Don, Don Juan himself is in hell, presumably out of his love for women, which we'll get to. Um, he had this highfalutin ideal that he tried to live up to, and as a consequence, he ends up in hell for his trouble. He thought he was bigger than he was, in short. So naturally, he goes to hell. See, one of the major characteristics that we see in Shaw's hell is that, is, that everything is illusion. As he says a little while further, no more real devils than you will be a real lady. Like, she is arguing, you know, all of her servants were devils, you know, I was a lady, a proper lady, and Don Juan goes on to say, you were not a real lady, and they are, are indeed real devils, and there is no such thing as a real lady, and as he puts it, nothing is real here. That is the horror of damnation. Everything in hell is an illusion, in much the same way that all of these virtues were illusory. In the name of justice, injustice is committed. In the name of honor, people die. In the name of, you know, duty, people waste their lives. That's what Shaw is emphasizing. That's what Don Juan is emphasizing. All of this was pretense, and this pretense is celebrated in hell. This pretense is the fundamental thing that everybody is doing. And remember, too, that it bores him. He is incredibly put off by this. And when the statue and when the devils come into the play and start, you know, posturing about honor and duty and justice and all of these virtues of hell, Don Juan almost always responds with frustration, anguish, boredom. 
It disgusts him. Here he is in hell where nobody says what they mean, what every, when everybody holds up these high ideals that nobody actually takes seriously, Don Juan can't handle that anymore. Don Juan, on some level, is honest in a way that hell just isn't, according to the way that Shaw portrays both the character and the place. Um, and notice, too, that the sort of highest of all virtues, the highest of all the seven deadly virtues, is love. So Don Juan says a couple of pages after this, oh, I beg you not to begin talking about love. Here they talk of nothing else but love. It's beauty, it's holiness, it's spirituality, it's devil knows what, excuse me, but it does so bore me. They don't know what they're talking about. I do. They think they have achieved the perfection of love because they have no bodies. Sheer imaginative debauchery. Fah! Don Juan sees hell sort of inhabited by all of these people who hold love to be the highest virtue. And like the other virtues we've talked about, love is one of those that people do horrible things in the name of. In the name of love, empires go to war. In the name of love, people are killed or dishonored or destroyed. In the name of love, careers are ended. In the name of love, people commit themselves to horrible relationships and horrible ordeals. Love destroys people in a way that all of the virtues don't. And so, here in hell, love is worshipped. Love is the highest of all the virtues. It is what everybody talks about all the time. And notice the way that they talk about it. It is holy. It is spiritual. It is beautiful. All of these things, and yet Don Juan emphasizes they don't know what they're talking about. Now, when he says, I do, we want him to elaborate on that. And he will, like, further down, although he doesn't use the, quite the same language. Um he is emphasizing that love, like all of these other supposedly important, supposedly virtuous activities, is actually hellish, is actually damnable. It is for love, for duty, for honor, for justice, that all of these people destroy each other. And therefore in hell they are properly acknowledged. But that doesn't mean that this is a bad place, or that these people are being punished. Um, notice like, most of the characters are actually pretty happy to be in hell. Don Juan is the only one who knows what he's talking about and wants out. Um, the statue, like, when he finally shows up, um, much to our surprise, the statue, the Commendatore, did go to heaven and hangs out there, but actually visits hell on a regular basis. Like, Don Juan and he are apparently friends, which... Donna Anna can't believe any more than the fact that Otavio, her, her husband, after Don Juan left her, is also friends with Don Juan at this point. Like, is nothing sacred, Donna Anna is thinking, but here we are. Um, notice the way that the statue behaves, though. Like, we had, back in Mozart, you know, the statue was this sort of symbol of doing right. Like, he is inflexible. He demands that Don Juan, you know get dragged to hell um the very fact that he is a statue that it's the statue that comes to life it has always sort of suggested that inflexibility like don juan cannot escape the ultimate judgment of heaven symbolized by this statue so here we have mozart's statue music the big dramatic chord and the statue shows up but he's not dramatic or important or powerful or whatever he's just relaxed and easygoing 
Um, notice the stage direction. To his sculpture, he owes a perfectly trained figure, which he carries erect and trim, and the ends of his mustache curl up elastic as watch springs, giving him an air which, but for its Spanish dignity, would be called jaunty. He is on the pleasantest terms with Don Juan. So he seems way more chill than we've ever seen the statue be before. Um, he waves his majesty with infinite grace, walks with a feather-like step, and makes every wrinkle in his war-worn visage brim over with holiday joy joyousness. This is not the statue as we know him from the opera. This is exactly the opposite. This is the statue acting like Don Juan. Light-footed, happy, just you know, with not a concern in the world. Um, and notice, too, that this statue emphasizes this. Um, like, when An Anna sees her father, she can't even recognize him. Um, in part because he's still a statue. Like, did you catch that? That's itself, like, one of the, the better insights that, that um, Shaw offers here. Um, the statue tells us, like, let's just look at this passage... Um, Don Juan, as, after the statue shows up, says, Ah, here you are, my friend. Why don't you learn to sing the splendid m music Mozart has written for you? And the statue says, Unluckily, he has written it for a bass voice. Mine is a countertenor. Notice, again, the statue can't live up to the standard that, that Mozart intended for him. The commendatore is not the idealized version that Mozart has created. Well, have you repented yet? The statue asks. I have too much consideration for you to repent, Don Gonzalo. If I did, you would have no excuse for coming from heaven to argue with me. True, remain obdurate, my boy. I wish I had killed you, as I should have done, but for an accident. Then I should have come here, and you would have had a statue and a reputation for piety to live up to. Any news? Notice again that the statue emphasizes throughout this passage, and Don Juan will go ahead and agree with him, that the entire reason why the Commendatore lost the duel with Don Juan was because his foot slipped. It was an accident. Like, Don Juan even confesses at one point he's a terrible swordsman. There's no way that he should have been able to beat a trained soldier who actually knew what he was doing with a sword. It was, in fact, an accident. But notice that the statue insists upon this point. Like, we get three lines in and he's already reminding us, you know, I was the better swordsman. Just like, you know, Anna with her pretentiousness to being honorable and dutiful, the statue also has this huge pretense that is keeping up. That he is this great, powerful soldier. That he is honorable and military and good. Um, now he asks Don Juan, is there any news? And Don Juan says, yes, your daughter is dead. And the statue doesn't remember his daughter. My daughter? Oh, the one you were taken with. Let me see, what was her name? He doesn't even remember. He doesn't care. It's not important to him. Like, Anna can't recognize him, but also it's obvious he doesn't recognize or care about Anna. Their relationship was a fiction. All of the, you know, the fact that he fought Don Juan for her sake is bullshit. He only fought her for his own honor. Remember Valentine and the fight with, with Goethe's Faust? How he says that, like, he's been destroyed by his sister? He doesn't care about her honor. He cares about being able to brag about her. The same is true with the statue here. He didn't fight Don Juan for her sake. He fought him for his own. Um, to be sure, Anna, a good-looking girl, if I re recollect all right, have you warned what's-his-name, her husband? Notice, have you warned him? 
Like, he should be alerted just in case they accidentally cross paths. He wants to avoid her as well. The statue, her father, has no connection to her. Her husband doesn't want to be around her. Anna is very surprised at all this. But notice that, again, there's an honesty about the pretentiousness here. Everyone in hell has, at the same time, sort of accepted their assumptions about themselves, but also is aware of the fact that it's all assumption, that it's all pretense. It is the pretense that bores Don Juan. It is the honesty that he is willing to accept and that he wants to talk about as well. Um... So Anna, again, is indignant immediately. What does this mean? Octavio here and your friend and you, father, have forgotten my name? You are indeed turned to stone. And notice the statue's response. My dear, I am so much more admired in marble than I ever was in my own person that I have retained the shape the sculptor gave me. He was one of the first men of his day. You must acknowledge that. Notice Don Gonzalez... Anna's father, the man who was killed by Don Juan in the duel at the beginning of Don Giovanni, he sees himself in hell and prefers the shape of the statue. He doesn't imagine himself to be human. He doesn't want to be human. He wants to be, you know, the statue, symbol of heaven's eternal justice, you know, powerful and scary and ominous. He wishes he had the bass voice that would sing Mozart's song for him rather than the countertenor that he actually has. He imagines himself to be bigger and stronger and deeper and more honorable and more powerful than he ever actually was in life. The statue is more appropriate in his mind. He prefers it that way. And Anna recognizes the hypocrisy of this. Father, vanity? Personal vanity from you? Ah, uh, you outlived that weakness, my daughter. You must be nearly 80 by this time. I was cut off by an accident in my 64th year, and I am considerably your junior in consequence. Besides, my child, in this place where our libertine friend here would call the farce of parental wisdom is dropped. Regard me, I beg, as a fellow creature, not as your father. Notice he likes the appearance of honor and dignity and significance and power. He doesn't want to actually do any of it. He asks her to ignore the fact that he is her father. Because he died when he was 64, she died when he was 80, technically she's older than he ever became. So he is locked in his own vanity, and he doesn't care. He's not upset about it. He doesn't want to give that up. He is vain unapologetically. He has this image of himself that is completely out of sync with the real him, and yet he adopts it and accepts it and expects everyone to do the same and doesn't care that it's hypocrisy. Nobody does. It's hell. What's the point of getting upset over hypocrisy? Let people be what they want to be and who cares about what they actually are. So Anna says, you speak as this villain speaks, and the statue says, Juan is a sound thinker, Anna. A bad fencer, but a sound thinker. Notice that the reason why everybody is friends with Juan, why even the devil sort of like hangs out and talks to him and enjoys sort of verbally sparring with the Don Juan is because they all see him as a proper philosopher, as clear thinking, as unwilling to accept, you know, all of this foolish, you know, pretense and instead calls things like they are, including those pretenses. Now, Anna, she's just beside herself at this point. I begin to understand. These are devils mocking me. I had better pray, she says. And the statue says, no, 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 my child. Do not pray. 
If you do, you will throw away the main advantage of this place. Written over the gate here are the words, Leave every hope behind ye who enter. Only think what a relief that is. For what is hope? A form of moral responsibility. Here there is no hope, and consequently no duty, no work, nothing to be gained by praying, nothing to be lost by doing what you like. Hell, in short, is a place where you have nothing to do but amuse yourself. Don Juan sighs deeply. You sigh, friend Juan, but if you dwelt in heaven as I do, you would realize your advantages. Notice what we're being told here. First off, he says the main advantage of this place is that there is no hope there is no prayer there is no chance that any of them is going to get rescued from it he in fact quotes dante here that leave every hope behind ye who enter is the famous line abandon all hope you who enter here like we talked about that back at the very beginning of class this is the characteristic thing about hell that causes it to be so hellish for dante and even for the devil and milton in both cases, hell is depicted as having no hope. There's no way to get back to heaven, and that's what makes it evil. All of our staunch Christians, Dante, Marlowe, Milton, they have all insisted that the hopelessness of hell follows demons wherever they go. It is what describes the torment. The fundamental thing that separates hell from heaven is the fact that there is no hope, and because there is no hope, there is never going to be happiness there. Like, even for the pagans hanging around their fire of reason, they lack the torment, but they do not have hope. And so they are, at the end of the day, pretty miserable. But here, Shaw says that having no hope is an advantage. What a relief that is, the statue tells us. There is no hope, no duty, no work, nothing to be gained by praying, nothing to be lost by doing what you like. In short, do what you want, he says. Hell is the place where you can do whatever you like, and there's no punishment. Because, you know, how could they punish you at this point? Like, what's left to punish? Um, there is no hope for something better, and therefore there's no reason not to do what you want to do. So live it up. Like, be a statue, or, you know, pretend to be a statue, or take advantage of your vices. Talk about love at long length. Talk about sex. Talk about whatever you want. Go ahead and be yourself, the statue says. It's hell. What, what could go wrong? Like, what could you possibly miss out on? Do what you want to do, in short. But notice that this is exactly the moment when Don Juan sighs. The statue tells us, hell in short is a place where you have nothing to do but amuse yourself. You All you have to do is be happy here, and Don Juan knows this is what makes him miserable. You sigh, but if you dwelt in heaven, you'd realize your advantage. Now this brings up the other side of it. Here we have a pretty good picture of hell. Hell is illusory. Everybody has, you know, all these pretenses. Hell is about virtue or these apparent virtues and everybody is pretending to have these virtues. They're pretending to worship love and duty and honor and the rest of it. But at the same time, there's no call for it. They, they just sing these praises because they want to. There's no reason to live up to those standards. So you talk about how great love is and you talk about how great duty is and you talk about how great honor is and everybody just accepts you for being dutiful and honorable but you don't have to actually do anything to get it like you are honorable despite the fact that you don't have to actually suffer and die for it you get to practice love all the time but with no consequences no repercussions all of the bad things about being on earth all of the responsibilities are gone 
And instead, you just do what you want, say what you want, and who cares if you're lying or a hypocrite or whatever. Just enjoy yourself, he says. Um, Now, the question we have to ask is, what is heaven like then? And we get a decent picture of this as well, between the statue, the devil, and Don Juan sort of describing what what we're dealing with here. Um, So notice that the devil immediately, like, he shows up and he starts talking to Don Juan and he immediately gets into a fight with Don Juan. Like, the courtesy that Don Juan insists upon the devil is upset about courtesy what is courtesy i care nothing for mere courtesy give me warmth of heart true sincerity the bond of sympathy with love and joy all those things that we've been talking about those pretenses those aspirations to honor and don juan of course says you are making me ill and the devil replies there And he looks at the statue, you here, sir. Oh, by what irony of fate was this cold, selfish egotist sent to my kingdom and you taken to the icy mansions of the sky? Notice that the devil and the statue are actually in cahoots with each other here. Like, they get along perfectly. The devil and Don Juan are perhaps the two most combative characters in the play. They are the ones who are the most upset with each other don juan is the furthest away from what the devil practices represents and wants don juan is frustrated by everything that the devil represents the devil likewise sees don juan as being the antithesis of everything he's trying to foster here in hell don juan's character as the devil points out here is better suited to heaven Why was this egotist, this cold, selfish egotist, sent to hell, where everyone is fellow-feeling and practices love and practices honor and duty and everybody's enjoying each other's company with no pretensions and yet all of the pretensions at the same time, and yet the statue, the one who does feel that fellow-feeling, who enjoys that brotherhood, who practices all these hypocritical virtues and is like the perfect example of what the devil wants, how did he get to heaven? The statue says, I can't complain. I was a hypocrite and it served me right to be sent to heaven. Now, we've been talking about hell as sort of the place for hypocrites and hypocrisy. Notice that that's not where hypocrites actually go. Hypocrites belong in hell, like Donna Anna, but hypocrites are frequently sent to heaven. And that is the correct punishment for hypocrisy. So notice Anna is a hypocrite. Like she only was good in order to get into heaven. She only practiced virtue because she thought that there was a reward for it. She was only honorable and dutiful and so on and so forth in order to seem honorable and dutiful. She was in short, you know, selfishly hypocritical. She didn't care about the things that she was was doing. She was only interested in the reward. She was honest in doing them insofar as she wanted that reward. And I suppose that's what disqualifies her from being a hypocrite in the same way as the statue. But that's, that's the only difference. The statue, on the other hand, notice he is so convinced that he is pretending to be virtuous. You know, he imagines himself so incredibly virtuous that he goes to heaven to be punished for that appearance. The statue has been trained out of the habit of looking virtuous. So he says, I can't complain, I was a hypocrite, and it served me right to be sent to heaven. The devil responds, why, sir, do you not join us and leave a sphere for which your temperament is too sympathetic, your heart too warm, your capacity for enjoyment too generous? And the statue says, I have this day resolved to do so. 
In future, excellent son of the morning, I am yours. I have left heaven forever. So first off, apparently everyone can just like go back and forth from heaven to hell whenever they want. This is not, you know, the vast gulf between them and like there is no hope of going to heaven once you have gone to hell. No, it's entirely voluntary. There is nothing keeping you in hell but your own preference for hell. There is nothing keeping you in heaven except your assumption that you belong there. Notice that as they discuss heaven, that is sort of the major characteristic, the decided thing that characterizes heaven. Um, notice that there's like this important, this long speech that the devil gives us that sort of explains how this works. Um, he says, dear lady, a parable must not be taken literally. The gulf is the difference between the angelic and the diabolic temperament. Where Anna says, what about that, you know, passage in the Bible that says that there's like this, ir this vast, like untranslatable gulf between heaven and hell. The devil says, well, it really doesn't have anything to do with distance. It's all about temperament. What more impassable gulf could you have? Think of what you have seen on earth. There is no physical gulf between the philosopher's classroom and the bull ring. But the bullfighters do not come to the classroom for all that. Have you ever been in the country where I have the, long, the largest following, England? There they have great race courses and also concert rooms where they play the classical compositions of His Excellency's friend Mozart. Those who go to the race courses can stay away from them and go to the classical concerts if instead they like. There is no law against it, for Englishmen will never will be slaves. They are free to do whatever the government and public opinion allow them to do. And the classical concert is admitted to be a higher, more cultivated, poetic, intellectual, ennobling place than the race course. But do the lovers of racing desert their sport and flock to the concert room? Not they. They would suffer there all the weariness the commander had suffered in heaven. There is a great gulf of the parable between the two places. A mere physical gulf they could bridge, or at least I could bridge it for them. The earth is full of devil's bridges. But the gulf of dislike is impassable and eternal. And that is the only gulf that separates my friends here from those who are invidiously called the blessed. So the difference between heaven and hell is not, you know, you get sent to one or the other and you're stuck there. You can go wherever you want. You get sent to hell, you can go to heaven. You get sent to heaven, you can go to hell. The only reason you stay where you're put, if you decide to do that, is because you like it better. And notice the comparison that's being made here between the concert hall and the race course. Like, betting on the horsies is, you know, always been considered a low pastime. Whereas going to a concert hall and enjoying the symphony or the opera is considered a high pastime. Like, you can think about it in your own life as well. Like, you are offered the opportunity to go either to, you know, a cheap pop concert or a cheap symphony orchestra. Like, the same thing is being pre presented at the same time. Which do you go to? You go to the one that you enjoy. Now, notice that there's an added dimension here. Like, the statue specifically emphasizes immediately afterwards, my child, one word of warning first, let me complete my friend Lucifer's similitude of the classical concert. At every one of those concerts in England, you will find rows of weary people who are there, not because they really like classical music, but because they think they ought to like it. Well, there is the same thing in heaven. A number of people sit there in glory, not because they are happy, but because they think they owe it to their position to be in heaven. And they are almost all English. Notice that Shaw himself is Irish and he really enjoys taking pot shots at the Brits. Um, in part because he's very familiar with them, in part because he hates them, because, you know, everyone hates their own people. It's a thing. Um, 
At any rate, notice the relationship here. Like, this is a difference between what you think you should like and what you actually like. Like, everybody says you should enjoy, you know, fine wine from, you know, the, the like an old hundred-year-old bottle from, from France, like wine country. But at the end of the day, you just like to drink beer. It's cheaper, it's easier, it's more fun, it's something that you tend to enjoy better. So even if you get the opportunity to drink your fine wine, you'll drink it because you think you should, because you think you've got to, but it sucks. Like, you hate it. You don't have the palate for it. You don't enjoy it. You just think you should enjoy it. Um, it sucks unless you, have, you actually do have the temperament to enjoy this. The same is true about heaven and hell, according to Shaw. Heaven is a place of high virtues. It is a place of high entertainments. But the fact of the matter is, most of the people who go to heaven are only there because they think they should enjoy it. They think they belong there. They pride themselves on thinking they, you know, enjoy the classical concert better than betting on the tracks. Um, they think that they would prefer to spend time at, you know, a classical music symphony than they would at a pop concert. They think that they, it is better for them to cultivate their taste and, you know, go to a, a academic lecture than watching a football game. Like, that's the distinction here. Some people will go to that lecture and be absolutely miserable and lie the shit out of themselves about it. They will say, ah, I am so refined, or ah, I am so educated, or look at me, I enjoy these pleasures that are much better than the fools with their football games. That's the difference here. Just about everyone in heaven thinks they should be there because they want to believe they're better than everyone else. That's what brings them there. That's why the statue went there. The statue went there because he thought he was more virtuous, more honorable, more dignified than everybody else. And so he goes to heaven and he's miserable there because he was lying to himself. Now, that's not to say that the people in hell aren't lying. Again, it's all illusion. But the fact is, there's no truth to be had. That's the key difference. In heaven, you are shown something that you either like or don't like. And you want to like it, but in most cases, you don't, actually. It's you being forced to go to a highfalutin play. It's you being forced by your professor to watch an opera you don't care for when you'd rather be playing a video game or watching something dumb on Netflix or whatever. There's no dishonor in admiring what you actually appreciate. There, and that's what Don Juan is emphasizing here. Um, that's what Shaw is emphasizing here. The statue, the devil, they all stress, you know, it's fine to like low things, just admit it. Stop pretending like you're something that you're not. Hell is where you belong. But it's not quite that simple either. Notice that Don Juan responds by sort of characterizing heaven a little bit differently. Um, so a little while later, we get yet another long speech about hell from Don Juan. Then you must stay here, Anna says, for hell is the home of the unreal and of the seekers for happiness. It is the only refuge from heaven, which is, as I tell you, the home of the masters of reality, and from earth, which is the home of the slaves of reality. 
The earth is a nursery in which men and women play at being heroes and heroines, saints and sinners, but they are dragged down from their fool's paradise by their bodies, hunger and cold and thirst, age and decay and disease, death above all. Make them slaves of reality. Thrice a day, meals must be eaten and digested. Thrice a century, a new generation must be engendered. Ages of faith, of romance, and of science and are, are all driven at last to have but one prayer, make me a healthy animal. But here you escape the tyranny of the flesh. For here you are not an animal at all. You are a ghost, an appearance, an illusion, a convention, deathless, ageless, in a word, bodiless. There are no social questions here, no political questions, no religious questions, best of all, perhaps, no sanitary questions. Here you call your appearance beauty, your emotions love, your sentiments heroism, your aspirations virtue, just as you did on Earth, but there are no hard facts to contradict you. No ironic contrast of your needs with your pretensions, no human comedy, nothing but a perpetual romance, a universal melodrama. As our German friend put it in his poem, the poetically nonsensical here is good sense, and the eternal feminine draws us ever upward and on, without getting us a step further. And yet you want to leave this paradise. Notice that Don Juan calls it a paradise here. Don Juan calls hell paradise. He conflates the descriptions. As he's stressing, hell is the home of the unreal, the seekers for happiness. If you want happiness, hell is the perfect place for you. There's literally nothing to get into your way. There's no reality that you're going to crash up against. You can live out your lies perfectly contentedly, and everyone will let you live out your lies perfectly contentedly, and you don't have to worry about dying, you don't have to worry about actual financial success. There are no obstacles. You want to be rich? Bam, you're rich. You want to be famous? Bam, you're famous. You want to be happy? Bam, you're happy. There's nothing to get in the way. There is nothing to overcome here. So you can effortlessly be whatever it is you always wanted to be. You can effortlessly pretend to be whatever it was that you wanted to be. Whereas in reality, we constantly run up against the reality of the situation. On Earth, it doesn't matter how much of a great writer you may think you are, you will not get published if you do not have the ability. It doesn't matter how great a singer you think you are, you will never be famous if you don't have the actual singing talent that describes so many others, that describes the people who do in fact get famous. In reality, you will run up against obstacles. Your illusions will be constantly disillusioned. You are, as Don Juan puts it, the slave of reality. In hell, there is no reality. No one is a slave. No one can be, or no one is being forced to do anything they don't want to. But as much as this is a paradise, as much as this like allows everyone to enjoy whatever they want, remember that Don Juan is bored by this. It is a paradise and a paradise that he hates. Notice, too, this line, this German friend business. The eternal feminine draws us ever upward and on. You may have remembered this. This is actually from the last line of Goethe's Faust Part 2. That little bitty chunk that I read at the very end of our Faust discussion. But notably, it doesn't describe hell, it describes heaven. So Shaw is definitely suggesting here that hell is what Goethe understood heaven to be. Hell is where there is no reality. Hell is where everyone can enjoy themselves, can be what they think they are without anyone disillusioning themselves from it. That's hell. And the eternal feminine 
apparently, for Shaw, resides in hell. So that sort of begs the question, well, what's true then? What does heaven have that is true? So they ask, you know, the devil says, you have been so eloquent on the advantages of my dominions that I leave you to do equal justice to the drawbacks of the alternative establishment. And Don Juan responds, in heaven, as I picture it, dear lady, you live and work instead of playing and pretend that, pretending. You face things as they are. You escape nothing but glamour, and your steadfastness and your peril are your glory. If the play still goes on here and on earth and all the world is a stage, heaven is at least behind the scenes. But heaven cannot be described by metaphor. Thither I shall go presently, because there I hope to escape at last from lies and from the tedious vulgar pursuit of happiness to spend my eons in contemplation to which the statue responds ugh and don juan continues senor commander i do not blame your disgust a picture gallery is a dull place for a blind man but even as you enjoy the contemplation of such romantic mirages as beauty and pleasure so would i enjoy the contemplation of that which interests me above all things namely life the force that ever strives to attain greater power of contemplating itself. What made this brain of mine, do you think? Not the need to move my limbs, for a rat with half my brains moves as well as I. Not merely the need to do so, but the need to know what I do, lest in my blind efforts to live I should be slaying myself. What appears to be true, as far as Don Juan is concerned, is this life force. In hell, you do what you want. There are no obstacles, there are no requirements, there are no proscriptions. You can be, do, whatever. Seek your own happiness, that is the sole purpose of hell. In heaven, you work. You face reality. And if reality is what you're geared for, that's where you want to be. Don Juan does not seek his own happiness. Don Juan seeks the true. Don Juan seeks what he calls life force. And this brings us to where things get really dodgy here. Now, I'm not going to, like, read through the rest, because obviously we've already been talking for an hour on just, like, the first, like, 20 pages of this text, um, which is super dense, and there's a lot to talk about. Like, Shaw is a very dense writer. That's part of what makes him so exhausting, I suspect. Um, but there are two things that I definitely want to touch on going forward. Um, and the life force is the second of them. The first I want to talk about is women. Don Juan in Hell spends a lot of time talking about Don Juan's relationship with women. And much as we've seen multiple different takes on this relationship with women business as pertains to Don Juan, like we've seen Moliere where Don Juan marries all these women indiscriminately and then like drops them at the first opportunity. We've seen Don Giovanni tempt them, seduce them, and then leave them with no, like, caring about what they're, what they're up to. And then in Byron, we get the flipped around. The women take advantage of Don Juan, largely because their situation is so bad that there's nothing else that they can do with their time or their energy. Byron is sympathetic to women, despite the fact that he paints them as, you know, seducing and taking advantage of, like, attractive young men. Shaw follows Byron to a degree. Don Juan complains at several times over the course of the, the play that women are predators, that they take advantage of men, um, that they like sneak people into marriage and do so in order to have children and to like reproduce and to you know make themselves happy. 
so considerably later on in the text, he said he connects this directly to the life force. In that case, what is virtue but the trade unionism of the married? Let us face the facts, dear Anna. The life force respects marriage only because marriage is a contrivance of its own to secure the greatest number of children and the closest care of them. For honor, chastity, and all the rest of your moral figments, it cares not a rap. Marriage is the most licentious of human institutions. I say it is the most licentious of human institutions that is the secret of its popularity, and a woman seeking a husband is the most unscrupulous of all the beasts of prey. The confusion of marriage with morality has done more to destroy the conscience of the human race than any other single era. Come in, Anna. Do not look shocked. You know better than any of us that marriage is a man-trap, baited with simulated accomplishments and delusive idealizations. When your sainted mother, by dint of scoldings and punishments, forced you to learn how to play a half-dozen pieces on the spinet, which she hated as much as you did, had she any other purpose than to delude your suitors into the belief that your husband would have in his home an angel who would fill it with melody, or at least play him to sleep after dinner? You married my friend Otavio. Well, did you ever open the spinet from the hour which the church united him to you? Notice Don Juan characterizes marriage as a trap for men. <sighs> he goes on later. It gets even more vicious. He's describing what honorable marriage in fact is. I learned it by experience, Don Juan tells us. When I was on earth and made those proposals to ladies which, though universally condemned, had made me so interesting a hero of legend, I was not infrequently met in some way as this. The lady would, that, would say that she would countenance my advances provided they were honorable. I will only marry you, I will only have sex with you if your intentions are honorable. On inquiring what that proviso meant, I found that it meant that I proposed to get possession of her property, if she had any, or to undertake her support for life, if she had not, that I desired her continual companionship, counsel, and conversation to the end of my days, and would bind myself under penalties to be always enraptured by them, and, above all, that I would turn my back on all other women forever for her sake. I did not object to these conditions because they were exorbitant and inhuman, it was their extraordinary irrelevance that prostrated me all right so this is seriously fucked up by the way in case you haven't picked up on it this idea that the entire institution of marriage was devised by women for the sake of producing children and devised so they would take advantage of men i just can't even like Byron, as much as he's saying that women are taking advantage of men, he is saying it in the context of women have a really shitty deal. Remember Donna Julia back in Byron's Don Juan where she says, you know, like, we are bored, we have nothing else to do. Remember her situation that she's 25, married to this 50-year-old dude? She's miserable. Her situation sucks, so of course she's going to cheat on him. Her husband is cheating on her, why shouldn't she do the same for him? And yet she's the one who's screwed. She's the one who, you know, is dishonored, sent off to a nunnery, her life is entirely ruined, while all these men seem to get off just fine in this situation. Byron is saying that women are in this impossible, ugly situation, and this is the best they can do, and if they take even the slightest bit of pleasure for themselves, all hell breaks loose and they're destroyed. Shaw, on the other hand, is saying that women are taking advantage of men for the sole purpose of reproducing, fulfilling whatever destiny or whatever purposes they have in mind, and men should be allowed to just go around sleeping with people, and who cares? Just 
what? Like, marriage is not a man trap. If anything, it was a woman trap. For hundreds of years, women have been passed around as though they are just property, and somehow Shaw thinks it's the men who are being taken advantage of here? Fuck that shit. Seriously. What the hell? But I digress. Again. Notice, too, that this is in service to the life force, as he emphasizes. So once again, we've got to sort of talk about what this life force is. So far, we've talked about it in two contexts. In the one, we talk about it in terms of heaven. Heaven is where the life force operates. It is where the masters of reality are in place. What's more, we're shown here that the life force tolerates marriage, accepts it, because it produces more children. It allows the human race to continue. As he says, the life force respects marriage only because marriage is a contrivance of its own to secure the greatest number of children and the closest care of them. Honor, chastity, and all the rest is, tr is crap as far as the life force is concerned. All the life force cares about is this is a great way to get kids and keep those kids protected. This should give us our first major clue as to what Byron, or what Shaw is talking about when he's talking about the life force. This sounds a lot like natural selection. The life force cares about marriage because marriage is how you get lots of kids and how you protect those kids. It's a survival of the fittest thing. The life force wants a better set of children, wants to protect the next generation so it can pass on its genetic material. Likewise, in the survival of the fittest, it makes sense that humans pair for life in order to protect their offspring, to protect their gen genetic material, make sure it goes on in the future. That's what Shaw is describing here. He's describing what is basically social Darwinism. The life force is the social Darwinist impulse. But wait for it, it gets better. Later on, Don Juan is describing about the life force and describing his own frustration with hell and says, On the contrary, here I have everything that disappointed me without anything that I have not already tried and found wanting. This is why he's dissatisfied with hell. Everything that he has tried and found gross and ugly and unpleasant and boring is in hell. Seeking after happiness, seeking after love, honor, virtue, all of those things that are hypocritical and, you know, illusory. Don Juan has found them in spades in hell, and they all bore him, and he doesn't want any more to do with them. So he's talking about going to heaven. I tell you that as long as I can conceive something better than myself, I cannot be easy unless I am striving to bring it into existence or clearing the way for it. That is the law of my life. That is the working within me of life's incessant aspiration to higher organization, wider, deeper, intenser self-consciousness, and clearer self-understanding. It was the supremacy of this purpose that reduced love for me to the mere pleasure of a moment, art for me to the mere schooling of my faculties, religion for me to a mere excuse for laziness, since it had set up a god who looked at the world and saw that it was good, against the instinct in me that looked through my eyes at the world and saw that it could be improved. I tell you that in the pursuit of my own pleasure, my own health, my own fortune, I have never known happiness. It was not love for woman that delivered me into her hands, it was fatigue, exhaustion. 
When I was a child and bruised my head against a stone, I ran to the nearest woman and cried away my pain against her apron. When I grew up and bruised my soul against the brutalities and stupidities with which I had to strive, I did again just what I had done as a child. I have enjoyed, too, my rests, my recuperations, my breathing times, my very prostrations after strife, but rather would I be dragged through all the circles of the foolish Italian's inferno than through the pleasures of Europe. That is what has made this place of eternal pleasures so deadly to me. It is the absence of this instinct in you that makes you that strange monster called the devil. It is the success with which you have diverted the attention of men from their real purpose, which in one degree or another is the same as mine to yours, that has earned you the name of the tempter. It is the fact that they are doing your will, or rather drifting with your want of will, instead of doing their own, that makes them the uncomfortable, false, restless, artificial, petulant, wretched creatures they are. As much as hell is a paradise, it is a paradise only because it deprives people of their central purpose, as Don Juan and the statue have both observed. There's no hope, and therefore you're fine to do whatever you want, and it's totally purposeless, and you can be whatever you want, and who cares? Don Juan says, I want purpose. I want to follow the life force. I conceive of something better than myself, and I aspire to it. That's why I'm going to heaven, because only in heaven can that be realized. But he goes on. Pooh, why should I be civil to them, i.e. the devil's friends, or to you? In this palace of lies, a truth or two will not hurt you. Your friends are the dullest dogs I know. They are not beautiful. They are only decorated. They are not clean. They are only shaved and starched. They are not dignified. They are only fashionably dressed. They are not educated. They are only college passmen. They are not religious. They are only pre-renters. They are not moral. They are only conventional. They are not virtuous. They are only cowardly. They are not even vicious. They are only frail. They're not artistic, they're only lascivious, they're not prosperous, they're only rich, and on and on and on. Liars, every one of them, he says, to the very backbone of their souls. What Don Juan aspires to instead is this life force, this self-perfection, this becoming something better than himself. That's what he is talking about when he says his whole thing about, like, you know... I saw that love was nothing but pleasure for a moment. Art was nothing but schooling for faculties. Religion nothing but laziness because it told me the world was perfect when it clearly wasn't. When every fiber of my being told me that it wasn't. And what's more, all of these people who are hanging out in hell, for all they are saying they are educated, religious, moral, you know, courageous, whatever, they are all bullshitting themselves and is all nonsense. What is true is defined. The hard thing that, come, that Don Juan wants to come up against, that he wants to support, is this life force. And the defining characteristic of this life force is that, on the one hand, it produces children and protects them. On the other hand, it creates a humanity better than itself. When I said social Darwinism... I meant, on the one hand, social Darwinism, i.e. this idea that human beings will perfect themselves. They have to evolve, and therefore there are superior and inferior human beings, and that by breeding the superior ones we will get even more superior ones, and on and on and on. P.S. If this sounds like eugenics, it totally is. Social Darwinism is fucking disgusting. Like, I can't. 
Social Darwinism may be one of the most destructive ideas of the 19th century. It is this idea that human beings, like animals, can be perfected if we just go out of our way to match all the good ones and get rid of the bad ones. Guess where racism in the 20th century comes from? Like, sh racism has been around. It is not invented by the social Darwinists. But the social Darwinists take science and say, okay, here is our justification for racism. Black people are inferior because they have inferior cranial, cranial capacities. Or, you know, Hispanic people are inferior because they lack whatever social characteristics that all of our social Darwinists want to protect. By contrast, here are the white folks, the superior race with their superior brain pans, proven superior by the fact that they've conquered the world and have done all this stuff and just no, 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 no. It is so much bullshit, it is so pernicious, it is so destructive, and Shaw is eating it up here. Shaw is describing a universe that tells us the life force is what you should aspire for. You should make a better human beings and damn the consequences. Forget morality, forget virtue, forget honor, that's all hypocritical nonsense. Instead, pursue the life force and damn if he doesn't go all the way and name his fucking play Man and Superman. He's making a direct reference to Friedrich Nietzsche here. And I get that Nietzsche has largely been redeemed by academia. Like, you may have read Nietzsche and had your own conclusions about it. Nietzsche sounds good on paper. And there are good things about Nietzsche in his philosophy. But Nietzsche is a hardcore social Darwinist, and it is the most fucked up part of his philosophy. There is nothing good about this kind of Nietzscheanism, and this is exactly the kind of Nietzschean thinking that Shaw is so excited about. Remember, at the very end of this whole play, they finally drop the act. Like, Shaw finally tells us that Nietzsche was hanging out in hell for a while. Um, the devil explains, oh, the latest fashion among the life force fanatics. Did you not meet in heaven among the new arrivals, that German Polish madman? What was his name? Nietzsche. Well, he came here first before he recovered his wits. I had some hopes of him, but he was a confirmed life force worshiper. It was he who raked up the Superman, who is as old as Prometheus. And the 20th century will run after the newest of the old crazes when it gets tired of the world, the flesh, and your humble servant. Nietzsche was born in hell went to heaven and is perhaps the characteristic figure that defines this life force following that Don Juan is so wrapped up with. Um, Nietzsche is the standard by which we are judging truth, according to Shaw. If you are seizing your reality, if you are doing what is right for you to do, not what you want to do, that's happiness, that's low and bourgeois and gross, but if instead you are perfecting yourself, making yourself into a better human being and seeking to make human beings better than themselves as well, if you are doing this with careful propagation and if you are doing this with, you know, only seeking out people who are as elite as you are, then you are doing the right thing and you will go to heaven and you will enjoy heaven and you will properly enjoy all the benefits there instead of just like faking it to yourself. Fuck all of this. Seriously. Shaw is saying there are some people better than others. Don Juan is part of that 
immortal cast who felt the life force flowing through him and it drove him to seduce all those women, never mind the consequences, never mind how many people he hurt along the way. At the end of the day, for Shaw, all of these women just are brood mares to bring forth the next race of superhuman beings. And if you too follow the life force, if you too are motivated by this pure instinct towards self-perfection, you too should definitely reproduce as much as you possibly can. The women are waiting for you to do it so they can help bring forth the life force's purpose as well. And if you don't believe that, look at the last friggin' line. Anna says, tell me, where I, can I find the Superman? And the devil says, he is not yet created. And the statue responds, and never will be properly. Let us proceed. The red fire will make me sneeze. And Anna shouts out, not yet created. Then my work is not yet done. I believe in the life to come. A father. A father for the Superman. Ah! Seriously? Like... The entire purpose of Anna's life, the whole reason why she wants to get into heaven, is to bring forth the Superman. All I am is the woman that will... Just, no, just forget it. Nope. 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 We're done here. Forget it. Nope. <sighs> Serenity now. Serenity now. All right. So, don't follow Shaw. I want to show you this because this is something that is really important at the end of the 19th century and it's going to bring about all of the horrific nonsense that happens in the 20th. This is absolutely indicative of the sort of horrifying eugenic nonsense that the Nazis are going to do. It is absolutely indicative of the sort of pride in one's nation that is going to bring all of Europe to its knees in World War I. It is absolutely the philosophy that is going to you know, lead all these people to give no shits about morality, about, you know, human virtue in any proper sense. Because again, as Shaw's saying, it's all hypocrisy. You know, love, not worth fighting for. It is hellish. Honor, not worth fighting for. Dignity, decency, being nice to people. Don Juan, as our prototypical hero in this text, cares not a whit for any of it. And say what you want about moral relativism, about like respecting other cultures, attitudes and beliefs or, you know, moralities sort of bumping out into one another. There's a, definitely a place for that. And the 20th century will be way better for the postmodern elements that are included as much as they will also cause problems in their own right. But this idea, this idea that human beings, or at least certain human beings, can be perfected, that the entire goal of human life is somehow to perfect our species and turn us into this, like, superman-ness, something that thinks for itself, that thinks of itself, that thinks in these new novel ways. No. 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 As much as, you know... Like, there's a whole passage in here where the devil emphasizes that humans have not advanced their morality a jot in 3,000 years of human civilized history. That, you know, we've invented all kinds of fancy new weapons, we've learned to kill each other and destroy each other with astonishing panache, and yet we are still as greedy and selfish and happiness-driven as we were on the first days when we were banging sticks together and started to, like, make the first stone tools 
And I think the devil has the right of it here. As much as Shaw is putting, you know, the bad words in the devil's mouth, as much as Shaw doesn't seem to agree with what the devil has to say, and virtually all the characters at one point or another uphold Don Juan as the hero of this text, I'm pretty sure I agree with the devil in this one. I agree that human beings are not going to perfect themselves through anything short of actual morality. The morality of Dante, the morality of Milton, the morality of Marlowe, the morality even of Goethe, the morality of Irving and the sort of condemnation of hypocrisy we saw in Moliere. Like, all of these scholars have, all of these artists have told us, you know, human beings need to make themselves better as unlikely as that is to be. But we're not gonna skip steps. We're not going to be able to just, you know, skip to the end and take the best of us and breed them all together and poof, here is our Superman and forget the rest. Never mind their suffering or their pain or their anguish or the social injustice. Who cares? Better people are better and that's all there is to it. No. This idea isn't going to be the dominant one in the 21st century or the 20th century, but it is going to be hanging around the periphery and where it shows up, it's going to do some real harm. Um... So you need to know about it. This is one of the true devils of the 20th century, and Shaw is unapologetically in favor of it. P.S. My man Chesterton hates the shit out of all this eugenics nonsense. He has this, like, four different treatises where he just takes Shaw to task for all of this, you know, we're going to perfect the human species crap. That's part of why I love him. Not the only thing. I love him for lots of other reasons, too. But I think you need to know Shaw this class i think you need to know at this point in history we have thrown out all of religion we can reimagine hell and heaven in these sort of wild and relativistic senses but in the process we may have thrown out the baby with the bathwater. like say what you want about religion and god and christianity and so on and so forth as much as, you know, there are tons of problems historically and there are tons of hypocritical Christians and hypocritical religious figures who, you know, have taken advantage of their positions of power to do things completely against what Christianity teaches. At the end of the day, I think the love your neighbor as yourself stuff, the, you know, treat each other with dignity stuff, the stuff about being nice, being meek, being humble, is powerful and important. And if we're getting rid of that too, I don't want a part of it. Like, the world that Shaw envisions, the heaven, his true paradise and not the one that the devil is suggesting, doesn't look like somewhere I want to be. It is mean. It is elitist. It is saturated in this pride on this level that I can barely fathom. It's wrong, in short, and I don't want you to follow it. But I do want you to see how this works, how it messes with the, the minds of the 20th and 21st century. Look for it now. It's not gone away. Um, in fact, it's probably more obvious now than it has been in decades. Um, this is the idea that the is going to get carried into the early part of the 20th century, and it's going to take some real hard lessons to get it knocked out of us. We'll talk about them next time.